The reading for today will be Colossians 3, verse 16 through 4, verse 1. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of the heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right. Thank you, Caitlin. Okay, so before we get started, a couple of other things. I hope uh, you got a chance to get a pretzel. Happy Father's Day. Uh, And again, we uh, spent time this morning in our, in our prayer, praying for uh, fathers, but uh, we also prayed for something else this morning. We prayed for the fact that it is also today, Juneteenth. Uh, Juneteenth is the day that memorializes um, when uh, transatlantic chattel slavery was finally put to an end in the United States, and so uh, we also wanted to mention that. And I want to also put a little bit of context on that that I think is helpful and important for us to remember. Um, The world we live in today, the culture we live in today, uh, is way different than even just a few decades ago. Uh, In in the public sphere, the vociferous arguments that are taking place are primarily between the political, secular, progressive left and the political, secular, conservative right. That's who's primarily arguing with each other. And and having said that, you you might notice that there's a group missing out of that. And that would be the church. That would be people who are gospel-centered. I've been saying this for a long time. We need to get used to being on the margins. We need to be used to, to, to living in exile and considering ourselves a remnant, if you read through Scripture, you understand that God's people rarely were the majority and rarely had all the influence, and that God primarily works best through exile and remnant. But also what's happening with that is that virtually everything culturally and historically, unfortunately, is being interpreted through those secular left and secular right lenses. And that distorts history. Uh, The end of transatlantic chattel slavery in the United States was primarily a fight between good, healthy, contextual biblical understanding and interpretation and very poor, evil, horrible biblical understanding and uh, contextualization. And the good, healthy, proper biblical contextual understanding and interpretation is what ultimately won. 
And that's what everybody knew at that time. Unfortunately, it's not understood that way anymore, and it's not interpreted that way anymore. But read the history about it. That's why the gospel is so important to these issues, whatever issue it is that you're dealing with. It's not just racism and slavery. It's every single issue that you're dealing with has to be rooted in the gospel. It has to be rooted in the truth of who Christ is, the fact that he is resurrected, and that kind of ends the discussion, the fact that he's resurrected, and we have to strain it through that lens because that's where righteousness and holiness is found, and we need to remember that. And lastly, let me just say, even, even um, ministers, African-American ministers, understand this. Here's a, I just, it's a very short prayer, but it's a prayer from Sterling Morris, who's an African-American pastor, and he, pray, and he prays this about this day. Thankfully, we praise you, O God, for, lib, for, for your liberating power that broke the shackles of oppression and restored humanity to the disenfranchised. Make us instruments of grace to resist slavery in all its manifestations that no soul shall be denied the right to thrive and fully realize their divine purpose in you. Amen. So having said that, and maybe even contextualizing a little bit our message today, let's dive into week number nine of our series in Colossians. This is the ninth week of our ten weeks in Colossians. Like I said, on July 3rd, we start that Old Testament series. And the last three weeks, including today, we're in a, we're in a three-week mini-series within this ten-week Colossians series where we are looking at relationships between married people, relationships between parents and their children, and now relationships in uh, the workplace. And again, let me read those transitional verses for you so we understand the context in which all of these relationships, and by the way, the principles that we're talking about in these three different relationships apply to all of our relationships, including our friendships, all parts of our family, our neighborhoods, wherever we might be. But here's the context of it. Paul writes this. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So here's a, here's a, here are a couple of quotes to start today with. I think they're uh, really helpful uh, not only for today, but they also summarize the three weeks that we've been looking at what we might call Paul's household code for gospel-centered uh, in Christ people. Uh, this new way of looking, according to Paul, at the fact that wives, children, and bond servants also have agency and rights in their context, and not just the husbands, the fathers, and the masters. Uh, this first quote is from Josh Butler. I love this. He says, the Christ-centered home is the beginning of the revolution. See, we hear all the time in culture, in the, in the public sphere today, about we've got to start the revolution, we've got to start the revolution, but it has nothing to do with the gospel. And, and really, the real revolution that could take place actually starts in the gospel-centered home. If we would just see that and live that out. It starts in the home of people who believe in Christ. And then Peter O'Brien, who's a New Testament scholar, writes this. If Paul's cl clear teaching about the privileges of and demands upon the Christian household were taken seriously by 21st century Christians, then personal relationships within families, households, and workplaces would truly be a foretaste of heaven. In the meantime, others, seeing how Christians love one another, may well be attracted to the one they love as Lord. 
And so what we're going to do today is we're going to first talk about and explicate and contextualize the verses chapter 3, 22 through 4, 1, which is specifically about this bond-servant and master relationship. And then we're going to move into some application about it as well. So let me reread starting from verse 22. Bond-servants... Obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So I just, here's one of the things that I'm trying to get at today. A worker's motivation and standards of production and service are to be the best possible because ultimately it's all being done for Jesus. That's what Paul is saying. We are all ultimately working for him, and especially as we work to bless others, we are also working vertically to praise him. And in fact, it's one of the places where we get our, our, one of our core values at Redemption Church. All of life is all for Jesus. Now, having said that, I'm going to spend some time talking about the elephant in the room that we need, need to deal with to help us understand this passage in its context so that then we can effectively and correctly apply it to us. So I want you to hang in there with me on this because we have to set this stage. It's really important because there's a lot of very poor teaching on both sides of the coin in the midst of this. First of all, we need to understand that the slavery, bondservant, another word for it is slavery, we need to understand that the slavery talked about here is not 18th and 19th century transatlantic chattel slavery that we experienced in America. The slavery that we are familiar with in our context is born of kidnapping and forced labor. And this is not what Paul is addressing here. Paul, I believe, and so do many others, would be thoroughly against that kind of slavery because Paul is a Jew who is an expert in the Old Testament and the Torah, and the Torah teaches specifically against that kind of slavery. So he would be against that. So people who complain that he doesn't say anything about that here don't understand context. So that's a problem. Furthermore, another key difference uh, before we look at the historical context of most bondservants in the first century Mediterranean world is that this ancient first century Mediterranean slavery was not race-based. So Greeks had Greek bondservants and, and Jewish people had Jewish bondservants and etc. So I want you to also consider this. Christians, and there are many who have done this, Christians who have historically used this passage to justify chattel slavery... They do it even to this day. They have a horrible understanding of history and context, and that's why context is so important. People who try to interpret Scripture without studying context are doomed to failure, doomed to misunderstanding, and doomed to frustration, and then will argue points that they have no idea aren't even close to being true. There has to be a little bit of study. Here, here you go. It, it, when, when you read the Bible, it's great to read the Bible, and I'm all for that, Okay. But it's also important not only just to read the text, but to try to understand the text behind the text. That's what we're getting at here. So we've got to understand context. We need to look at historical context, economic context, cultural context, sociological context, and yes, even political context, 
or we're just going to be frustrated and misinformed. So notice Paul does not address the broader question of slavery in this letter or in his letter, in his letter to um, Philemon, which is expressly about Philemon's bondservant, Onesibus. Now, why doesn't he address it in either of these letters or in Ephesians where he talks about this? Here's why. First of all, because unlike the slavery that you and I are probably familiar with, Indentured servitude in that particular historical and sociological context, first, uh, first century Mediterranean Greco-Roman world and culture, was often a choice by the one who was indentured. It's a choice by the one who was indentured. It's way different than our nation's historical chattel slavery. Now what they had as part of their economic system was entered into contractually. You would literally go and sell yourself in order to gain employment and a place to live. And in the process, you would forfeit certain rights. But it was contractual. Now, there were usually limits to the contract, like how long somebody would be a bondservant, and there were limits to their treatment, kind of similar to employment contracts today. But consider this. I just want you to consider this. And I had a lot of affirmation from people who were in the military after first service about this. If you agree to go into the American military, it is clearly a form of indentured bond service. Yeah, you get paid. Yes, you get a place to live. And yes, you're probably going to learn a trade. But you also give up a bunch of rights by signing up for the military. And essentially, they own you. Just try to leave without their permission. They own you. Okay? Second of all, this economic system of indentured service was also used as a way to work off debt. One of the great four-letter words of our world, debt, D-E-B-T. Okay? Let me ask this question now. It's rhetorical. You don't have to raise your hand because I already know the answer. Okay? Are any of you in any kind of debt? Mortgages, car loans, Consumer credit, credit card, student debt. Anybody have any debt? Okay, now, check this out. In Rome, in the first century, the Latin word for having to work off debt as a bond service, uh, as a bond servant, the word was addictus. Does addictus sound familiar to anybody? It's where we get the word addiction from. Okay, if you're in addiction to something, you're in slavery to it, okay? And, and don't you feel like you're in service to whatever you're addicted to? Some of us are addicted to debt, as a matter of fact. It's something else that we have to manage. And of course, all of us in this room today are willing bond servants to any financial institution that holds our paper, our mortgages, and our loans. And here's how I know that's true, and you can test this in your own home if you would like to. Don't pay your bills for 90 days and see what happens, okay? That's all you need to do. This is, this, I, I know how this experiment ends every single time. All right? And then finally, number three, in some situations, you could choose to be a slave instead of going to prison. You'd work for the person that you wronged or committed the crime against for up to six years, but then the law provided that you must be freed with your family and the, the, the person needed to give you a little bit of uh, a head start money as well. Uh, I haven't had a Seinfeld reference in a long, long time, and so I'm going to give you one now. In season four, when Jerry and, and George are writing the pilot for their new show, show for NBC, does anybody remember the story of the pilot within that episode? Okay, does anybody remember it? Well, Jerry got into a car accident, and the guy that caused the car accident, he got the ticket, and he didn't have any insurance, and so he was required to go to work for Jerry as his butler in order to work off the ticket and the debt, the crime and the debt. So you, you see... 
the Seinfeld show has a really good biblical understanding, and that's important to know. You're, you're studying the Bible when you watch Seinfeld, okay? And again, remember, it, for the specific context here, the Torah, the Mosaic Law, so that's Genesis through De um, Deuteronomy, which Paul was infinitely familiar with, has this to say about these economic systems. You were never allowed to kidnap or otherwise take a person by force to be slave, and you could not mistreat a bondservant. And this was unique among all of the old, uh, the ancient uh, law codes. This was unique among those ancient law codes. Now, why was it unique among all the ancient law codes? I'll tell you why. One word, Egypt. This law code came about after they were brought out of Egypt, where they lived as slaves, oppressed, kidnapped, owned slaves. And they came out of that, and so part of their law code pushed against any kind of treatment like that, which Paul knows. And so he's not speaking about this kind of uh, bond servanthood or, or slavery. Now, yes, there were parts in the known world in the first century, as is today, by the way, where slavery is not a choice, it's a form of oppression, forced labor, and kidnapping. Paul's not addressing that here. Otherwise, we might be having a different conversation. Peter O'Brien, again, the New Testament scholar, writes this. No revolutionary program is suggested by Paul to deal with the abolition of this economic system. Instead, the focus is on transforming personal relationships within the system through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so what he says to the bondservants, to the workers, to the employees, he says, listen, you need to understand that you're not just working for your boss and you shouldn't just do your work well or at all when your boss is looking. You need to understand that you're working for Christ the Lord who has given up everything for you so that you can be reconciled to the Father and therefore you should remember that as you're working and not work as eye service. Don't, work, don't do it to please uh, other people, but rather do it so that you're pleasing the one who has saved you. Do it that way. And I think it's interesting we're talking about this now. We're kind of sort of in the wake of the pandemic. And a lot of people who had a job in an office, a destination, and, and then were forced to work at home for up to two years, maybe more, a lot are now going back to work. By the way, there's also a lot of arguments about that, right? I don't know if you've been following it, but some corporations now are at a point where they're saying, look, we're just going to insist that you come back to the office to work or you're fired, and that's going to be interesting how all that gets worked out. But a lot of people started working from home, and I would argue that that would have been a great opportunity as a Christ follower to demonstrate that you weren't working for iService. Because at home, you can do pretty much whatever you want, and fudge on your work and do it whenever you want, all that, if anything, the follower of Christ should have been standing out at that time as somebody that could be counted on because they were working at home and not somebody who's getting in the boss's mind thinking, we got to get them back in here because I have no idea what they're doing. That's our call. That's our responsibility. And not to our bosses, but to our master in heaven, who would be Jesus. And then consider verse 4, chapter 4, verse 1. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Again, never before has the master of the house been put in this position, other than maybe in the Old Testament. Paul explains that in a gospel-centered home and community, there is no favoritism. The master is not the only one with rights. 
The father, the husband, the master is accountable and responsible to a being way higher than him. This was revolutionary in their context, from the wives to the kids to the workers. Until now, the man ruled everything and there were no questions asked. And Paul now says that he is held accountable and accountable to God. So let's now talk about why it is that work is a gospel issue and why living and working for Jesus is so important and a part of who we are as followers of Jesus. So I'm going to turn, it'll be up on the screen, but I'm going to turn to Genesis chapter 1. It's the creation narrative. So we're in the last half of day 6, the last day of creation, verses 26 and 27. Then God said, let us, that would be the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, let us make man, that word there is the Hebrew word Adam, from which we get the name Adam, but in that particular context and case, it means human beings or humans. So let us make humans, man, in our image and after our likeness. Now what does that mean? We're going to talk about that. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. That word dominion is problematic. I'm going to talk about it a little bit. And then over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, what would it have been like to live in harmony and unity with scorpions prior to the fall? Wouldn't that have been great in Arizona? And then verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created a male and female he created them. So remember, this was God's original ordered design, male and female. We could talk a lot about that, but we're going to talk more about work here. And we're going to start by asking the question, what does it mean to be made in the image of God? Why, how are we image bearers of God? So if you ever go to seminary and you take a systematic theology class, it's likely that you'll be asked to write a paper on this and, and state your position. Occasionally, somebody will say, oh, it's physical. You know, God has arms and legs and he walks with people and all that. Okay, no, but God also has wings and feathers, so I'm not sure about that. Um, but then we get into the ones that are, that are uh, more plausible. God's an emotional being, and we're an emotional being. Yes, that's true. Uh, we do need to remember, though, that because of Genesis 3 and the fall of sin, our emotions are tainted by sin, whereas God's aren't. So God knows how to love in a pure, righteous, and holy way. We're struggling with that. We have our own definitions and understanding of love, which falls way short. And then think about this emotion, jealousy. Um, our jealousy is tinged and corrupted with, with sin, and so it's very self-centered. We're not, when, God, when, it, when it says that God is jealous for his people, what, what it's saying is that God wants the best for his people. When, we say we're, when I say I'm jealous that Jackie is spending so much time with that dude over there, I'm jealous on my behalf. I'm, I'm more concerned about what's happening to me, not what's happening to Jackie, although Jackie should really be concerned about what's happening to me. At any rate, so you see how that works. Then some people say, well, God is a rational being and we're rational beings. Well, the same problem happens there. Our rationality, our ability to reason is also influenced by sin. So that creates a bit of a problem, but it's still plausible but here are the two biggest ways that we bear the image of God because it's also in Scripture and clearly enunciated in Scripture. Okay? The first one is that we were created to be in relationship. In Genesis 1.26, it says, Let us create man in our image. Okay? So there's this relationship in the Godhead. One God, three persons. 
Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And they have a relationship. We were also created to be in relationship because that's how we best bear the image of God is when we're in relationship, not just with Him, but with others. And then that's reaffirmed in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, when God looks at the man alone in the garden and He says what? It is not good that the man should be alone. This is the first time in Scripture, that God says something is not good. He doesn't say it's sinful. He just says it's not good. Up until that time, we have all these benedictions. At the end of every day, he looks at what he created, and he saw that it was good, it was good, it was good. And then at the end of six, the sixth day, it was very good. This is the first time he says something is not good, and that's that the man didn't have somebody to be in relationship with. So a pri- uh, one of the primary ways that we bear the image of God is to be in relationship with each other. Now again, our relationship is flawed because of sin, but we still have to keep pressing into it, even though it's awkward and it's hurtful and it involves trust and forgiveness and grace and mercy and all of those things. We still need to press into it because that's what God calls us to do. And then you think about the relationship in the Godhead and understand that that's, we're trying our best by the power of the filling of the Holy Spirit, to emulate that. If you read through Scripture about how each member of the Godhead is talked about in relation to the others, what you find is that the Father is shy towards or yielded towards the the Son and the Spirit. He's always pushing them forward. The Son is shy towards the Father and the Spirit, submitted to the Father and the Spirit. The Spirit is shy towards yielded towards, submitted towards the Father and the Son. How are we doing in our relationships? That's what we're called to in the Gospel, that we be shy towards others and yielded towards it. Not shy like, oh, gee, I don't want to see you, but rather shy meaning, I want to really take care of what's best for you. So that's one primary way. And then the second primary way speaks to our text today. God created us to work, to produce, to have purpose. And that work, that production, that purpose, doesn't matter what context it's in. It can be in the marketplace, it can be at home, it can be wherever you are, but you are called to have a purpose. You're called to produce, you are called to create. Here's how one author talks about it. He says, God is a big C creator. He can create out of nothing, but then he's given us all the resources that we need to be able to create out of something. We're small C creators, but we are called to create things and to produce things in order to be a blessing to others because that's how we bear the image of God. We produce in order to bless. That's our call. Now again, all of that gets tainted by sin. I understand that. Work in Genesis 2 was pleasurable, wonderful. It was for a blessing, and there was an ethos of generosity. After Genesis 3, work was toilsome and hard, and you eat eat dirt, and, and it's an ethos of coveting and hoarding, and we need to break out of that. The gospel pushes against all of that, and we need to understand that. And then, then I also want to talk about the other issue here, let, and God said, let us make man in our image and likeness. Let them have dominion over everything. Let them have dominion. So we've had a problem with that word as well. First of all, you hear the word dominion, and a lot of people hear dominate or dominance. That's not what that translated Hebrew word means. We need to understand that. It literally means to be a trustee of or to steward for the benefit of others. Okay? So, again... 
historically in my life, I have heard a number of people who have taken Genesis 126, Christian people, and they say, we can do whatever we want to the creation because God has given us uh, dominance over it. And that's just not true. There's no understanding of care for his creation in a, in a, in a statement like that. So here's how I'd like to unpack it for you to help you understand a little bit better. From uh, 1994 to 2003, almost 10 years, I was a trustee on the board at Grand Canyon University back before it is what it is now. It was really small back then. And so I was a trustee. So that word trustee is, is embedded in what that word dominion means there. Now, as a trustee of Grand Canyon University, if we had that same approach that we could do whatever we wanted as trustees because we have dominion, okay, that means that we could take advantage of the students, the faculty, the administration, and the employees. Is that our job as trustees? Of course not. Our job was to serve them. Our job was to bless them. Our job was to make decisions and produce things that were going to benefit the students, the, the faculty, the administration, and the employees. You see how that works? That's the idea of this dominion that we have. And so we bear the image of God when we go to work. Some people call it the cultural mandate. We are mandated to go to work, to produce, to have purpose for God. And I'll tell you, I know some of you are sitting there thinking, not in my job, I don't see how I'm a blessing to anybody else and I don't know how my job gives glory to God. Start thinking about it a little bit differently. If you think of yourself in terms of, uh, of being a victim, if you're thinking of yourself in terms of how hard work is and you're not thankful uh, enough that you don't have gratitude, I'm not saying you shouldn't change things that are truly bad. But if you would have an attitude of thankfulness and gratitude, if you would not think of yourself as a victim, but start to think of, all right, how does my job bless somebody else? I had one person in my office one time and said, I don't buy any of that. I'm a debt collector. How am I blessing anybody? Well, you're blessing the people that you're collecting the debts for. They have to have somebody do that, so you're blessing them. And check this out. Also, that debt collection process might be a wake-up call to that person. They're not happy with you in that moment, but later on they might point back to that and say, well, that was a wake-up call and that's when I finally got things together. So you have no idea how God is going to work in those things, and a lot of it is a perspective and an attitude about us. So as I said, in the garden prior to Genesis 3, there was an ethos of generosity, and then our world post-Genesis 3 is an ethos of coveting and hoarding, and as faithful followers of Jesus, we have the freedom to view our work as a blessing to others and not just protection and sustenance for ourselves, though it also is. It is also protection and sustenance for us. There's one last thing I'd like us to consider coming from this text. In our world today, we are constantly told by the culture that you and I were indoctrinated by our culture, in fact, that you and I are masters of our destiny, that you and I are masters of our bodies, that you and I are masters of our desires, and that you and I are masters of our ideologies. And no one has the right to disagree and not submit to our domain of mastery. That's what we're told. That always works so well when those domains of mastery begin to collide. Have you ever noticed that? Okay, it works great if you're alone all the time. But in community, that doesn't work very well. But who we are is very clear. The reality is that nobody wants to be mastered by anything except themselves. Okay, 
And yet, there's a reality that there is a master in heaven. Paul says that. And this master in heaven is not going to negotiate with us and will not cave into our emotional reasoning about our personal domains that are so important to us. Now, having said that, on the other hand, there is a sense in which we are all masters in some contexts of our life. Think about it. We are customers. We are consumers. And in a way, that puts us in the position of being a master. We're being served by employees. From the Henry to Circle K, to our providers of healthcare, to financial counsel, to fitness and technologies. So the question then becomes, how are we treating them? We have responsibilities as customers and consumers as well. Are we treating them in a way that is fitting under the Lord and in the sight of the Lord? In verse 23, Paul says, you are working for the Lord. That is not necessarily just a command to work harder or produce more, but it is also, rather, a call to participate in the cultural mandate to work to be a blessing to others in whatever context you're in. And treating those who serve us fairly and justly is not just a call to do the bare minimum, but a call to extend dignity, honor, agency, and grace to those who clearly make our lives better. It's, it's Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, Uh, People who read the Bible a lot know three better than they know four. Chapter three says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourself. And then here comes verse four on the heels of that, the one we don't know as well. Paul says, look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Here's what Paul is saying. It's okay to look to your own interests. But as far as your interests are commingled with other people's interests, in humility, you got to look at those interests as well and understand how your interests are affecting them and submit yourself to that process. That's what we all need to do. As we wrap up this little mini-series, this three-week mini-series, what I want to do is go back to Colossians 3 and reread verses 12 through 17 to remind us again of the context in which Paul talks about all of these relationships. Put on, then, as God-chosen one, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, And let the peace of Christ rule your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Notice how often being thankful and having gratitude is mentioned in the Bible. You see, the gospel of Jesus transforms everything, including marriage, parenting, and the workplace. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and its truth, and I just uh, I pray that we would be people uh, who would have the courage to not only live out the parts of your word that we like and that we agree with, but also be confronted and transformed by the ones that we struggle with. Help us to be able to do that. Fill us with your Holy Spirit, we pray. We welcome your Holy Spirit. We just ask that the resurrected Christ would be our rock and our foundation in all of life. 
We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to have our time of, of reflection. We're going to sing a couple songs, and we're going to take communion together. If our communion servers would uh, please come forward. A reminder that uh, this, the Lord's Supper, communion, is a sacrament. And it was something that was put together by Jesus on the last day of his life when he's with his disciples. They're at the Passover meal. And at one point, he picks up the bread and he changes the Passover meal. He breaks the bread and he says, this is my body, which is for you. It's given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then later on, he picks up, there, there were four cups sitting there. And the third cup, which, which is the one he picked up, the, the cup of thanksgiving, he picks that up and he says, this is the cup of the new covenant of my blood poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And Paul tells us later on, he says, as often as we drink this cup and eat this bread, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. And we do that not only because it's a confession of our sin and our need for a Savior, but it is a celebration that we have one. And so we come not only in prayer and reverence to the Lord's table, but we also come in celebration and thankfulness. So let's do that now. Breaking the 
All is stripped away And I'm simply gone Longing just to bring Something that's a word That will bless your heart I'll bring you more than a song For a song in itself Is not what you have required You search much deeper within Through the way things appear You're looking into my
of worship when it's all about you. It's all about you, Jesus. I'm sorry, Lord, for the thing I've made it when it's all about you. It's all about you, Jesus. I'm coming back to the It's all about you. It's all about you, Jesus. I'm sorry, Lord, for the thing I've made. It's all about you. It's all about you, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, it's good to be encouraged about the transforming power of the gospel in all of our life, from being a dad, a husband, an employer, an employee, a wife, a child, all of our life. Super encouraged by that, by Frank uh, being faithful to preach that. So it is Father's Day. I don't know if we have very many more pretzels. There were a few more. So if there are, go snag it. If not, then go somewhere to get a pretzel because you, you should get that. Um, also, we're not having youth ministry after this because uh, the youth ministry is, exists to partner with the parents to disciple our kids. And so we want to intentionally not meet to encourage being home with your dads and hanging out. Uh, I want to pray this over us as we go into the week. Uh, I pray for you to be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, may you be strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. In him, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We'll go and live all of life all for Jesus. We love you guys. We'll see you next week.